Well, now we're going back here to Romans chapter 8. And I kind of think about it like a mountain peak in the scripture. One of the great joys of going to Colorado to see Julie's family is to see the Rocky Mountains. The mountains are majestic. They're beautiful. They, they call your attention. So does our scripture today. It's majestic. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It calls our attention. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Follow along as I read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we have opened your word And we've looked at this majestic peak of truth, this amazing, you know, words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that have now been given to us to read and to study. Spirit, we pray you would illumine us, these words, and challenge and change us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we spent our last sermon together, just on verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We broke down the verse, and we learned that verse 28 is a truth that we know. It's a fact. It's a reality. We know God is working all things. You can count on it, right? You can take it to the bank. And these days where it seems like you can hardly count on anything, that everything around us is jello, we know. We know that our faithful, just, good God is the sovereign God. The sovereign God over us, over our lives, over our world. We know that God is working all things. His purpose, done. His plan, done. His will done. It is God himself that is working all things in our lives, in our church, in our world. Beloved, God is ceaselessly and powerfully and intimately active on our behalf, working out all things for our good and his glory. All our hardship, all our gain, all our loss and all our blessing all our joy and all our sorrow, all our suffering, all our delight, all things our sovereign God is working all things for our good and his glory. Now, sometimes, right, we kind of stumble over this word good, right, as we look at our lives. There's often a lot in our lives that, from a human point of view, doesn't seem very good. Now, the Bible is replete with account after account after account, story after story after story. It's an honest book. 
It's full of loss and pain. And of course, the greatest story ever told is of our God himself, our Savior Jesus Christ, humbling himself, becoming a man, living a perfect life, and then becoming our perfect sacrifice, dying on a cross for our sins, the Lamb of God, given for the sins of mankind, dying in our place for our sins, taking our just punishment to thus offer us life, eternal life, an abundant life. Beloved, our God knows how to make what is meant for evil and turn it for the good. Remember, we can understand what good really means by the very context of this passage. We saw that at the end of verse 28 helps us define what is good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The good in our lives is according to God's purpose. It's God's good for us. It's God's planned good for us. Our God is our Father. He loves us. He he knows things we don't know. He sees things we can't see. He knows what's really important for us. He knows what we really need. And in his purposeful will, he plans the good for his children. Remember, this planned good is not for everyone, but only for those who are called and in turn respond back in love to him. For those who love God, for those who are the called of God. God's promise of working all things for the good is only for those who are part of his family. This is very important to understand because it totally helps us to understand what the good is. The good here is God's ultimate good, God's good of salvation. And we know this because that's what verse 29 and 30 are all about from our creator's perspective. The greatest and most ultimate good for his children is for them to be in an everlasting covenant relationship with him. God's plan for good is for us. isn't focused on earthly, temporary, transitory things, but on eternal things, on permanent things, on heavenly realities. You see, verse 28 can only be accurately understood as we keep it in context with verse 29 and 30. So let's break down in greater detail today what we just introduced a few weeks ago in verses 29 and 30 which gives us God's master plan of salvation. First, we're going to look at the purpose of our salvation. Then we're going to look at the progress of our salvation. If you look at verses 29 and 30, you see a progression of five words. Five words that show the progression of our salvation. If you take out the end of verse 29... And you scrunch those two verses together, you can clearly see the progression of salvation. It would go like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. But before we look at this five-fold progression of salvation, let's take a look at what Paul added right in the midst of that progression. Paul, under that divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us this inerrant word that we have, adds this descriptive comment after mentioning that second word in the progression. Thus, he gives us 
the purpose of our salvation in the midst of giving us the progress of our salvation. He gives us the why. Why has God saved you? So that you might be conformed to the image of his son, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God's purpose in our salvation? First, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good that God is doing in our lives? He's making us like his son. The all things that God is orchestrating in our lives to shape us is to shape us into the likeness of his son. God's overall plan for your life is to conform you into the likeness of Jesus. What does God want for you? He wants you to become like Jesus. The good that God brings about in our lives, weaving all of our circumstances together, both the suffering and the blessings, it's the good that shapes us into the image of his son. There is no greater good for us than to be like the one who is good. See, God has this master plan for his children And the all things are designed to shape and polish and and melt and smooth and sculpt and frame and cast and contour us into that master design. God is pouring us into the mold of his son. All true followers of Christ are being remade from the inside out, are being transformed to be more like Christ. I find great comfort in that. I find great motivation in that, right? What is one of the main reasons why God saved Brian Etheridge? To conform me into the likeness of his son. What is one of the main reasons that God saved you? To mold you into the likeness of his son. What a vision, right? What a life vision. Our lives should be this never-ending, ever-progressing, constantly advancing, change after change after change, growing in the likeness of our Savior. It is for that purpose that I was saved. It is for that purpose that you were saved. Christian, do you see your life that way? Does the quest of your life match the purpose of God's salvation for you? Each day, each day, even in the mundane and routines of life, each day of work, each day of school, each day with family, each day shut in at home, every day overflows with meaning and purpose and and value and opportunity. Because every day is a day to continue the quest. To continue the quest of our lives. To live out the purpose for which God has given to us and our salvation. To be more like Christ. The great Renaissance sculptor Michelangelo reportedly said... The sculpture is already complete within the 
the block of marble before I start my work. It's already there. I just have to chisel away at the superfluous material. So it is with our God. As Galatians 2.20 says, as Colossians 1.27 says, Christ lives in us. Christ is in us. So what is God doing? God is chipping away at all the superfluous material in our lives until we're conformed to the image of his son. Oh, to be like thee, blessed redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Does the quest of your life match the purpose of God's salvation for you? Well, may it be for each one of us. Well, the next purpose of our salvation that we see in verse 29 is that Jesus would be preeminent among many brothers. One wrote, God's purpose is to make us like Christ in order to create a great redeemed and glorified humanity over which Christ will reign and be forever preeminent. Folks, God is building his family. One of the great purposes of our salvation is that God is building his family. It's one of the themes of chapter 8. Verse 9 says that we belong to Christ. Verse 15 calls us sons of God. Verse 15 tells us we are adopted into God's family, that we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16 and 17 says that the witness of the Spirit in us tells us that we are true children of God. And since we are children, we're heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Verse 21 talks about the freedom and glory that we as children of God have and will have. Verse 39 to come tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God. And right here in verse 29, it tells us the purpose of all of that is Christ. God is building his family. Why? In order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Christ would have the preeminence in the family. One wrote, the purpose is that Christ might be the eldest in the vast family of brothers. The supremacy of Christ is reflected in the designation firstborn. It speaks both of his priority in time and of his primacy of rank. It also implies there are to be others who will share in his sonship. Christ is the first in time. He's the first in rank. And he's the first among many in the family of God. Another wrote, the only reason why God has saved me is for the sake of Jesus Christ. The ultimate reason for salvation is the honor and glory of Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the universe. The goal of creation is that Christ might have the preeminence. Folks, the purpose 
of salvation is that Christ might have the preeminence in the family of God as the head of the church, as the cornerstone of the church, as the firstborn among many brethren, as the firstborn of the resurrection, as the focus of our worship and praise, our Jesus preeminent. God is creating his family around his son, for his son, because of his son, conforming that family, us, into the image of his son. You see, we not only are to become like him, but as we do, we do it so that he will receive the preeminence, so that he will receive the glory, so that our Savior would receive the worship of our lives as our elder brother lifted up for all to see. Beloved, our salvation is not a status of our lives, but the purpose of our lives. Salvation is not just a transaction, but it's a transformation and an ongoing transformation. Getting saved is not the goal of your Christian life. Being conformed to the image of Christ is. Giving Jesus the preeminence in our life is the goal of our Christian life. We weren't saved just to go to heaven when we die. We were saved so that right now, right now in our lives, we could live out the purpose of our God to the glory of Jesus Christ. Be this while life is mine, my song of love divine. May Jesus Christ be praised. Sing this eternal song through all the ages long. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Well, next we're going to look at our passage here, this fivefold progression of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For those whom he predestined, he also called. For those he called, he also justified. For those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? Just amazing, wonderful, powerful truth. But before we get into the specifics, let's note a few things about this first. First, we need to see that these five links of the chain are unbreakable. If you're part of the first link, you are by necessity going to be part of the last link. Paul makes that clear by repeating this connecting phrase, he also, between each word. All of whom God foreknew, he predestined. All of whom God predestined, he called. All of whom God called, he justified. All of whom God justified, he glorified. The links in the progression of salvation are unbreakable. Well, next we know the reason why they're unbreakable. Because of who the subject is. God is the subject. God is the one doing all the action in all five of the links. Paul is, is writing this progression of salvation from God's perspective. Now, it is true that we must respond to God. And we're going to talk more about that later. But it is also true that the initiative, the work, the actual saving is all God. 
From start to finish, our salvation is about what God has done for us and to us by his will, through his son. The work of salvation is all of God. Tis ours, but to believe. It's also a helpful note that all the words are in the past tense. Now, only God can talk that way, right? Only God can talk about having done something that is yet to come. So sure is the progression of salvation that Paul writes it as if it has already been completed. One wrote, Paul is speaking here of the Lord's redemptive work from eternity past to eternity future. What he says is true of all believers of all times. Security in Christ is so absolute and unalterable that even the salvation of believers not yet born can be expressed in the past tense as if it had already occurred. Because our God is not bound by time as we are. There is a sense in which the elements are not only sequential but simultaneous. Thus, from his view, they are distinct, and in another sense, they are indistinguishable. God has made each one of them an indispensable part of the unity of our salvation. Oh, the power and majesty of the plan of our God. So as we look at them individually and sequentially, we must remember that they are absolutely and unalterably linked together in unity in God's great work of salvation. So first, let's look at this word, foreknow. He foreknew. Now, it might seem like an easy word to, de- to define, right? Well, to foreknow seems to know ahead of time. But this word doesn't just mean that God is omniscient and he knows what's going to happen before it happens. The important meaning of this word is not the knowledge about facts, knowing facts ahead of time, but about knowing relationally ahead of time. It's not about the knowledge of facts, but it's the knowledge of relationship. It is knowing like Galatians, excuse me, like Genesis 1, 4, 1 says, where it says, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's like from Amos 3, 2, where God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, of course, God knows factually all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the people of the earth. He knows it all. But here he says, no. But here, no is a relationship word. It's a word of love. It's a word of covenant. Out of all the peoples of the earth, the only people that God knew was Israel. In Matthew chapter 7, Verse 23 in the great Sermon on the Mount, as some claim to have done these great things for God, what's Christ's response? He says, I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. What's he saying? Depart from me. I have no relationship with you. You see, knowledge here is the knowledge of relationship. That's what's behind this word, foreknow. 
One wrote, the Hebrew word to know expresses much more than mere intellectual cognition. It denotes a personal relationship of care and affection. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. God set his love on us. He loved us ere we knew him. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, predestined here is pretty much what it sounds like. God's determining the destiny of those on whom he has set his love. There's a decision that's involved in the process of salvation. But it's God's decision before it can be our decision. God takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative. Predestined is that eternal plan and purpose of God. Ephesians 1 so clearly and powerfully teaches this truth. It says in verses 3 through 6, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. And then it says in verse 11, in him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works All things according to the counsel of his will. Of course the Bible teaches predestination. It is throughout the Bible. Our God is the sovereign God. And by necessity, with sovereignty, comes predestination. God chose us before we chose him. God loved us before we loved him. Now, this is actually easy for us to understand. Just think with me now, practically, how easy this is for us to understand. Because when we pray for someone's salvation, don't we pray to God and ask him to do his work in them so that they might recognize their sin and go to him for salvation? Why do we pray that way? Because that's our testimony, right? Because that's what God did for us. We all know in our own lives that God took the initiative. That it was God's work in us first that brought us to see our need for Christ and to turn to him for salvation. It was God's work in us first that brought us to salvation. And we know that. See, Paul in in this chain link of salvation doesn't mention our response of faith. Because his focus here is focusing on what God is doing, but he does talk about it. In just a chapter over in Romans chapter 10, he says this of our response to this amazing work of God in our lives. In verses 9 through 13, the scripture says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the very midst of the truth of God's predestination and his choice is our choice and our confession. These two truths are not opposed to each other. No, folks, in God, in his will, they're totally harmonious. Now, we can't fully understand that. And that's really okay, right? Because guess who he is and guess who we're not, right? He is God and we are not. It is okay that we can't fully understand the will and the purposes and the plans of God. But now think with me here in this detail. No one has ever said, no could ever say, well, I want to believe in God, but God didn't choose me. No one can ever say that. Why? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And no one has ever said, and no one could ever say, well, I don't want to believe in God, but he forced me against my will. See, in that same great Ephesians 1 passage about God choosing us before the foundation of the world, in verse 13 it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Yes, God chooses us before the foundation of the world. That is absolute truth, God's choice. And yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Absolute truth, our choice. It's a paradox here on earth. Clearly understood in heaven. See, if you fall off the knife's edge towards predestination, you fall into the air of determinism. We are not automatons, right? We have choice, and we are responsible for our choice. And if you fall off the knife's edge towards man's choice, you fall into the air of fatalism, where God's totally passive and he's kind of wringing his hands and he's looking around, oh, maybe somebody will choose me. Wouldn't that be nice? See, the truth is on the knife's edge. The truth is what the Bible teaches us. It's like two train tracks, right? God's predestination and our choice. Both tracks are necessary. Both tracks are true. And though we know that the train tracks never meet. Have you ever stood on the train tracks and gazed off on the horizon? And what happens? It looks like those two train tracks become one. See, for what for us is a paradox of these two train tracks. Oh, no, for our God, no paradox. Full knowledge, full understanding, full will, his perfect will being done. 
as many have said before, of this fabled archway of, and your entrance way into heaven, right? And this fabled archway to heaven, as you're entering in, it, on one side it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that first or second step into heaven, and you look back on the archway and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. See, after Paul goes into this great discourse and chapters 9 and 11 in Romans on Israel and election and Gentiles and salvation. He ends chapter 11 with his gaze towards heaven. He ends in worship, exclaiming from his heart this mystery of God. And so do our hearts. We resonate with these words in Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. We ponder the mystery of our amazing God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him. Be all glory forever and ever. Amen. We fall in our knees, in our hearts, in worship. The mystery and the beauty and the majesty of the plan and wisdom of our God. Well, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Every believer is called by God. This is God's effectual calling. His calling leads us to our responding in faith and salvation. This is the call to a dead man, right? Ephesians 2 says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. This effectual call is pictured for us. Is Jesus standing outside Lazarus' tomb. And he calls forth Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. But hearing the call of Christ, he comes alive. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But hearing the call of Christ, the work of the Spirit in our lives, convicting us of our sin, convincing us of the truth of the work of Christ, Hearing the call of Christ in our lives, we come alive. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul tells the Thessalonians that God called them through the gospel. Every believer knows, we all know, that this calling of Christ in our lives came through the gospel, which brought us eternal salvation. Well, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Now, we spent a lot of time on this truth earlier in Romans, in chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5. But it is perhaps best summarized in our chapter, in Romans chapter 8, right there at verse 1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have no condemnation because Jesus Christ has taken our condemnation. Because we have been declared righteous 
not with our own righteousness, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness on our account, we've been declared to have a right standing with God, justified because our sins have been placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness has been given to us. Jesus took our just judgment of our sins and his death, and then he gives us, the repentant sinner, his resurrection life and eternal life. Folks, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember, all these words are in the past tense. Our glorification is sure because God has made it so. Glorified is that final removal of sin, that final conformity to the image of Christ. When Philippians 1.6 says, God will finally complete us. What he began in us, he will bring it to completion. That's glorification. It is that glory of Romans 8.18, the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. It's not our glory. It's not our glory. It's God's glory. His glory, glorifying us to his glory. Glorification is not primarily about us, but it's the great work of God completing our salvation. And so, beloved, here we stand. In awe of our God, in awe of his plan, in awe of his salvation. Believer, today, as we get ready to have communion together, as you hold those elements in your hand Today, remember Christ. Remember all that he has done. Remember how he loved you first. Remember how he chose you first. Remember how he drew you to him. Remember how he declared you righteous, taking your condemnation. Remember how he made your salvation so secure, so sure, that he's already announced your future glory. Remember Christ. Well, maybe today... This is your day and this hour where the amazing work of God has has been tugging at your heart, tugging at your soul. Maybe for the very first time you are starting to see the truth. The Spirit is opening your heart to see God's grace. The Spirit is opening your heart to respond in faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved today that everyone could be you today respond to him turn to him right now in prayer and confession give in to that spirit's call into your life and through the gospel respond in faith to jesus christ for all who he is and for all that he's done for you let's pray together Father, now we come to you in this moment so thankful, so amazed at the beauty and the power, the truth of your word. It strikes us right where we're at. As Christians, we're in awe of the mystery and the beauty of our God. And maybe here today, for the first time in your life, you're in awe 
because the Spirit is convincing you in your heart, in your spirit, that there was this man named Jesus who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead for you to take your place, to give you life. And right now, you can confess him as your Lord and Savior. Right now, in your heart, you can turn to him and be saved. Oh, the beauty and the power and the majesty of our God and your word. Oh, the mystery of the sovereignty of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.